Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. I am your host, Ted Harrington, and with me is my very special co-host, Ben Schmerler. Ben, what's going on, man? Hey, Ted. Thanks for having me, as always. (laughs) It's so good to have you as a co-host. Oh, wonderful. Yes. (laughs) And joining us is our special guest who comes from security. Ben, you're a security guy. I'm a security guy. We're always excited to have security people on here, even though we don't have that very often. Brian Contos is a board advisor for Phosphorus Cybersecurity. Brian, we're excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. Hey, Ted. Hey, Ben. So I'll I'll start us off here. Ben said to me recently, and by recently, I mean 39 seconds ago, he said, you should ask Brian about cyber warfare. And I told Ben to shut up so I could hit record so we can start because I really (laughs) want to ask you about this. So Brian, let's just start right there. Can you tell us about your background in cyber warfare? Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess a little bit in general, my my background in cyber, I've been in cyber for about 25 years. So I started with DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency down in Fort Huachuca. I did that for a couple of years. That was sort of my first kind of entry point into the world of cyber, both offensive and defensive, mostly offensive. After that, I moved down to Brazil. I worked for Bell Labs for a couple of years. And then after Bell Labs, I moved back to the States and just started doing a bunch of startups. So Riptech, ArcSight, Imperva, Solera Networks, uh, Veridin, and uh, just started building companies and really fell in love with it. Always security companies, always security companies. During that path, I met some really interesting people. Some that I had relationships with from back in my days with DISA kind of popped up again later in the startup world. And I wrote a book on physical and logical security convergence with the former deputy director of the NSA, Bill Kroll. So very thick book, could stop a, a low caliber bullet, uh, <laughs> very, very verbose. And it was sort, sort of touching on the points of, you know, you've got logical security, network security, you know, firewalls, IPS endpoint, but you've also got physical security, things like door locks, security cameras, biometrics, and kind of how, how to merge those two worlds and then a few years ago, I actually did a cyber war documentary with General Michael Hayden, so former head of the CIA and former head of the NSA, and that was Five Eyes, and that was all about cyber warfare. So throughout my career, I've, I've traveled quite a bit. I've worked in about 55 different countries, mostly with Global 2000s and also government agencies, and primarily the focus has been mitigating both nation-state threats and mitigating cyber criminals often which are the same people, uh, but uh, being able to address those particular threats. So I guess I've been kind of in the cyber war, quote unquote, area now for, you know, probably about the same amount of time as my career, about 25 years. That's awesome. That's awesome. I really wanted everybody to hear that background because we're going to talk about a lot of scary security stuff. And fortunately, we have the expert on to, to talk about it. We, you know, we're in a very interconnected world these days. And when you think about our day-to-day lives, both business lives, professional lives, whatever, there's like an app or a device or something that could solve all of our problems, whether it's tracking our personal health, 
or our time or doing our investments or or doing our day-to-day work. And this is great, right? We're able to get all this stuff done, but there's sort of a caveat about this. Tell us why we should maybe be a little bit careful about the devices and apps that we use. Yeah. You know, one of the things that people don't often think about when they think about devices or things is that they're actually computers. So you think about a printer, a security camera, a UPS system, a digital door lock. Fundamentally, those are Linux servers. Sometimes they're BSD on the OT side. Sometimes they're real-time operating systems like VXWorks. But usually it's like Ubuntu, it's BusyBox, it's things like this. And I've seen security cameras that are actually more powerful and capable in terms of storage and memory and CPU than my laptop. So these are very powerful devices, often Linux servers. Again, the problem is (laughs) they're not usually installed or built by security professionals or people who think about a security development lifecycle. And it's not like you got one or two of these things in the enterprise. What we're seeing in general is there's about three to five of these devices per employee in a company. So you got a company of, let's say, 10,000 people. You've got 30 to 50,000, you know, what we call IoT or extended IoT devices in that environment, all running Linux, half of them with no password, filled with vulnerabilities, running firmware that's probably six, seven, eight years old or more or end of life. And they're highly vulnerable. So attackers are, are targeting these devices, but no one's watching them except for nation state actors and except for cyber criminals, because they found out it's been a huge backdoor. So it's these things, it's these special devices that I think are starting to sneak up on people and they're everywhere. And, you know, I I work with a hotel chain, just in printers, they have 50,000 printers. And that's not even before you get into their traditional IT devices and all their other XIOT devices. So it's a very target-rich environment for attackers, and they can do a multitude of attacks, most of which are actually using these devices to attack IT devices to steal sensitive data and exfiltrate it out. Wow. So who owns that problem? Is this the responsibility of device makers, of enterprise, of the average end user? And if it's a shared model, how do we solve it? Yeah. So remember the end of Spider-Man when all the Spider-Men were pointing at each other saying, who's who's taking, who's the real Spider-Man? That's kind of what it's like. I'll, I'll give you an example. We went to this one company. They said, look, look, man, you guys have like, you know, 75,000 security cameras, which isn't unusual for government agencies and very large enterprises, casinos, things like that. So you have a lot. And people often hack these things. They use them for crypto mining. They use them for spying. They they use them to attack IT devices like we talked about. So there's a lot of issues. So who owns them? So we're in this room. There's about 15 people. Oh, that's facilities. And the facilities folks are like, oh, no, we don't own this stuff. What are you talking about? That's network operations. Network ops goes, what? No, that's the security team. The security guys, no, no, no. We outsource this to some vendor. So everyone's pointing at somebody else because nobody wants to take responsibility. To your initial question, yes. Certainly the vendors that are building these devices need to step up a little bit. What I'm seeing a lot in this code is there's a lot of shared libraries. There's a lot of white labeling. So we'll see a vulnerability that's on a printer. The same vulnerabilities on a voice over IP phone or a KVM switch. Sometimes they have the same default passwords and configurations because they're all borrowing from each other because most of these companies aren't necessarily even tech companies. It might be an agricultural company. It might be a pharmaceutical could be anybody that's developed these devices and they've just happened to make them smart devices. So they're kind of borrowing and stealing code from everywhere with no security development lifecycle. So that's certainly a big part of it. The other part of it is once these devices are deployed, who's deploying them? Usually somebody shows up with a truck, a box full of cameras and a drill, 
and they mount these things and then they drive off and they're done. They're not thinking about your security. They're not thinking about integration with your, your SIM or your ticketing system or anything like that. They just, if it's doing video, it's doing its job. So implementation, installation, whatever you'd like to call it, that needs to be considered. But of course, most importantly, are the actual enterprise security teams, just like they're focused on network security and data security and endpoint security and cloud security. XIoT or extended internet of things becomes another layer that they need to consider. Because again, at the end of the day, these are just little Linux servers that no one's watching that are completely insecure running around their environment. So the security team at the end of the day needs to treat these like critical assets and being able to kind of be that backstop, if you will, for security for those devices. That's really interesting. I, I want to get back to something you talked about with some of these threat actors, the, the 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 people and organizations that are doing stuff. You know, I think a lot of people think about black hoodie guy, you know, Mr. Robot or something, you know, some guy who's really nerdy who likes to hack away at things. And then other and then I think we all sort of have this idea generally that there are nation states out there who have maybe a maybe either a political or some other game that they're looking to get. Would you like to elaborate, maybe demystify some of the stuff with the nation state actors a little bit? Because you said a couple of things that were really interesting to me about who these people actually are from these nation states. Yeah. Well, the the first thing to think about is nation state actor by day is sometimes cyber criminal at night. And that's because these folks have safe harbor. And what I mean by that, and probably the easiest way to kind of think about this is think of the pirates of the Caribbean, not Johnny Depp, but the actual, the real, the real pirates in the, the in ride, the you mean? Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. I got it. Okay. I can only think of Johnny Depp right now. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> now you said Johnny Depp. I can't not think of it. Yeah, so that's all there is. So, so these pirates would, would hang out in the, in the Caribbean and do pirate stuff, I guess, bury treasure, make maps, train parrots, whatever pirates like to do. And the local government said, look, you can do all your pirate stuff. That's cool. We'll give you safe harbor. No one's going to arrest you here. You're going to be fine. But every once in a while, the Spanish are going to come by. They're going to come by with some chips. We'd like you to go out there, blow them up. That would be great. Just keep them away from us. And they had a, they had a deal. So we see this today with cyber criminal organizations where they say, look, do all the cyber criminal stuff you want. You guys want to do phishing. You guys want to do malware distribution, DDoS for hire, whatever. Great. Don't do it in our country. Don't do it to our allies, but do it wherever you want. We're not going to do anything to you. But occasionally we're going to call upon you to do something that might be not financially beneficial to you. It might be a politically motivated attack. It might be information gathering. It might be sabotage. It might be something else. We'd like your assistance. So we're seeing a lot of that. It's very Vito Corleone. One day right? I'm going Isn't to it? ask a favor of you. <laughs> I got a favor. You won't, you won't be able to refuse this deal. A good example of some of these things is uh, you might, some of the listeners might have heard of RSOCs. So spelled just like it sounds, R-S-O-C-K-S. So RSOCs was a, a very large takedown. It was the United States working with the UK and a couple other countries. And it was a XIOT botnet. It was primarily industrial control systems. So things that you see in oil and gas, power and energy, batch or discrete manufacturing, transportation. These are those, you know, OT devices that are running VX works and they're digital devices that control physics, voltage, pressure, temperature, things of this nature. A little bit of what we call enterprise IoT printers and cameras, um, and a little bit of network gear, you know, switches, load balancers, network attached storage. But the great majority were these SCADA devices. And they they weren't they weren't attacking these things to blow anything up. They weren't trying to commit sabotage. They weren't even trying to steal anything. These were just devices that they were able to connect to. They were audacious enough to be online. They were able to infect with some malware. They had command and control capabilities, and they basically added into a botnet. 
Now, in this case, this botnet was so effective and so powerful, it was being run out of Russia, by the way, by Russian cyber criminals, that they said, well, we're going to start renting this out. So they're renting it out for about 30 bucks a day. And you can use it for whatever you want, Black Hat search engine optimization, DDoS, phishing scams, whatever you'd like. But if you want to pay $100 a day, you actually got 24 by 7 online technical support. So they ran this like a business because it was a business because the people behind it aren't, you know, that Hollywood idea of the black hoodie drinking joke cola and playing first person shooter games in his mom's basement, right? That's just not what it is. These are real businesses. A lot of these people have, you know, masters or PhDs in computer science or economics and things of this nature. They run it like a real business. They're very powerful. And during that takedown, they're able to kind of as, as you know, botnets are a hierarchy. Think of it like DNS because they're highly scalable. They're able to basically chop the head off that. And that takes them down for a little while. We're talking weeks to months until something pops back up, as these, these will do. Well, the interesting thing about this was not the fact that these cyber criminals figured out a way to monetize these devices, but they also figured out a way to monetize devices that aren't traditionally considered devices that people hack. You know, people hack laptops, people hack servers, workstations, things like that. But these XIOT devices kind of made it interesting. Well, the flip side of that, and we'll also stay in Russia for this example, is Russia had a tool built for them. It was actually the Russian FSB hired some contractors to come in and they built a tool called Frontan, F-R-O-N-T-A-N. And this was a tool specifically designed to find XIOT devices, compromise XIOT devices, control those devices and use them for a bevy of reasons, most of which are, is usually intellectual property theft. Well, unfortunately for the Russian FSB, Frontin got stolen by the Digital Revolution Hacking Group and got released to the world. So if you go to your favorite torrents today, you can probably find a military-grade, nation-state-funded XIOT hacking tool that's extremely powerful. And if you don't speak Russian, but you can use Google Translate, you too can leverage this tool in your own daily use. So the interesting thing is the people behind the design and the usage of Frontend and the people that are involved in some of these botnets and takedowns, there's a Venn diagram. There's a lot of shared individuals within those organizations. So again, the, the line between nation state actor and cyber criminals often very blurred. You're bringing up a lot about the market conditions around what cyber security is and the opposite of security, you know, the hacking, the bad type of hacking side. So let me ask you about that. So like one of the things that I learned about over the last, I don't know, year or two or whatever, is this really fascinating aspect of how different ransomware gangs actually have like ratings, like Yelp ratings in terms of like, yes, this, this group is most likely to actually give you back your stuff if you pay the ransom. And I thought that was really interesting when I heard about that, first of all, because that's ridiculous, but also that that signals a maturity of a marketplace. So what is your observation on that, on what we might traditionally see as market forces in a more traditional market, but how it's actually manifesting in these more malicious markets? Yeah, it's a great question because it's almost like a, a hacking revolution, if you will. They've had a couple decades to mature and they mature very, very quickly, right? because it's usually conducted by people that are engineers and security specialists that are that are leading these the development of these tools, et cetera. What we've seen is a lot of specialization. So you might be really, really good at making fake credit cards and doing carding activity. And you've got a bunch of machines and you can do that. And somebody else is great with identities. Somebody else is really, really great at uh, creating ransomware and writing malware. 
Somebody else is good at putting together massive botnets. And we've seen botnets, by the way, that are so huge that their aggregate bandwidth and processing capability is bigger than Amazon and Google combined. So these are massive, massive infrastructures, right? Of which, you know, some are controlled by governments. And again, the government or the cyber criminal could be the same, same group of people. So those botnets can be used for all sorts of, all sorts of reasons. But that specialization is really interesting because people get really, really good at what they do. They also create networks of people they know and trust, right? So it can be challenging to infiltrate some of these organizations. We've seen some of these groups that communicate not online, but through like dial-up using like old bulletin board systems and things of that nature. So a lot of the traditional mains of going to, um, you know, the dark, dark net and start looking for things and looking how, you know, the usual places where bad guys hang out. Well, I'm not going to say that that's not valuable. It is. A lot of these people are kind of going analog because if they go back in time, 25, 30 years, it's hard to use conventional means in order to track them. So that's really interesting. We're seeing a little bit of maturation in how they're doing that. We're also seeing a little bit of compression in terms of the number of people that are involved in this, where you might've had you know, thousands and thousands of people creating this really specific malware. Now, maybe you only have hundreds and hundreds of people doing it, but the people that are doing it are getting really good and they're selling it for profit again, and they're they're helping others. So it's, it's, it, it's evolving, and it's evolving very quickly. And because there's no borders, there's no political systems, there's no government involved in this, it can mature extremely fast, much faster than most nation states can evolve in order to stop them, which is kind of the scary bit, because offense is moving quite a bit faster than defense in this world. Well, someone's probably listening to this and they're looking at their Apple Watch sitting on their on their nightstand or or their Roku TV or something and they're probably saying can I can I really trust this device and you know what would you say to someone like that you know who obviously we're not going backwards here it's not like we're undoing all of our technology disconnecting us what would you say to somebody who is maybe a little untrusting of the devices and the apps they use. How can they address this in their own lives or their own businesses? Yeah, certainly being untrusting of it is probably a good approach to these things. There's, for example, there's devices, there's certain cameras, things, uh, cameras made by like Huawei and Hikvision, HKE, that in November of 2022 were actually made illegal to import or sell within the United States. And the reason was, is because when they were recording, you said, stop recording, it would turn the green light to red but it would still record both audio and video. And this is in boardrooms and manufacturing facilities and you know airports around the world. And it would stream that data to remote locations. So there are malicious devices. There's devices that, you know, that are some of the most popular cameras, for example, that were on Amazon a couple of years ago, actually shipped with malware pre-installed from the manufacturer. So they come out of the box malicious. So keep that kind of in the back of your head. Now, I would say one, buy, try to buy from reputable sources, be aware where you're buying this technology from, right? You know, I think an Apple watch, I think, you know, something from Amazon, things like that. That's, that's probably fine in terms of manufacturers. The other thing that you want to look at, it's the basics. I tell folks, a lot of the stuff comes down to like security in 1995, like know what you've got. So first of all, it's good to know what I've got that's online. You know, if I'm at home, is it my washer and dryer? Is it my ring doorbell? Is it, you know, is, do I have a lot of Bluetooth smart items throughout the house? These are things I want to be aware of in the enterprise. Again, you've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these types of devices that you may or not be aware of. So just situational awareness, having an understanding of your, you know, your attack surface, right? That's, that's critical. But then again, playing on this idea of 1995, Rotate the passwords on these things, add complex passwords that follow the same password 
you know, security guidelines that you would use for your laptop, you know, uppercase, lowercase, special characters, numbers, make it relatively long, maybe, you know, 15, 20 characters. And if possible, rotate those every 90 days. Now, I know that can be a little harder with XIOT devices. Even if you add a great password like that and rotate it once a year, you're better than most of the XIOT devices out there that have no password or default password or they're never changed. The next thing is update it. A lot of these devices are running the same firmware a decade from now that they were when the things were built. We see like Ubuntu version 10 so much. It's a decade old. It's literally a decade old. It's 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 littered with vulnerabilities, but it was the initial build for like a KVM switch or lights out management or something of that nature. So they're they're running this old firmware. So update your devices, get them patched. That will address a lot of the vulnerabilities. And the last thing is, again, 1995 security. Turn off stuff you don't need. If you don't need to be running Telnet and FTP and TFTP and HTTP, turn it off. Just run SSH and just run HTTPS. If you don't need Bluetooth, shut it down. If you're wired, maybe you don't need wireless turned on. You know, Turn off the unneeded ports and protocols. Harden that device, essentially. If you just take those basic steps, and these aren't really, for definitely for an enterprise, for a security team, these aren't very complicated things to do at all. For a home user, it might be a little challenging, but if at least they're putting a good password in there, it's so much better than doing nothing at all. That's going to save them. And you know, we're, I'll give you a good example of why. If you think of one of the earliest attacks on I, IoT devices, it was called Mirai. It was back in 2016. And it was simply based on a bunch of devices that were internet connected. So you could go off to Shodan, type in like security camera. If you do that today, you'll probably find about 5 million internet connected cameras. Probably more than half of those have no password or a default password just today. So Mirai worked by doing that. It would find these devices. Oh, they're also running Telnet. Port 23 is open. No password. I can get access and control this device. If you think back to what I said about white labeling and shared libraries before, that means that the same issues were on printers and set-top boxes and voice over IP phones. So now in a set of cameras, Mirai was able to attack all these devices. Well, it's 2023 now. We still see devices out in the wild, hundreds of thousands, millions of devices that are still vulnerable to Mirai. We even see devices that are still running the Mirai malware on them because they're still printing or they're still filming or they're still allowing the door to be locked and unlocked, but they also are running malicious software that people can use for sabotage, for spying, for pivot attacks to attack IT, to do a whole number of things. So these devices don't get fixed. So if you can update your passwords and you can patch your systems, you're so far ahead and behind most what everybody else is doing. I think it puts you in a very secure position where most of these attacks are simply just going to move on to the, the next vulnerable device. That was a really good description of someone who is an end user of these things. What do we say to the organization who's building something? So there, there's a CTO listening to this or an aspiring CTO who's listening to this saying, I'd really like to build a more secure system. What's one thing I should go do today? Yeah, the best thing that I could say for these devices is, well, I'll, I'll give you two simple things. One, at the point of installation, require a change from the default password. Don't let them just change it to default one or something like that. Actually require a good password at the point of installation. That will help a lot. You see that a lot with home devices, but not so much in the enterprise level. The other thing is, just like we have automatic updates and it's very easy to update our devices, we have to make it much easier to update these types of devices. 
Like I've got a printer next to me. And if I had to update it, I'm going to have to go Google the model number, figure out where I can download or probably put it on a thumb drive. I got to stick the thumb drive in there. I've got to do some kind of weird sequence to have it read from that and reboot. It's probably going to take me an hour. And that's going to print out a piece of paper that says I've been upgraded. That's not very efficient. Now you multiply that times 40,000 printers like that hotel chain that I talked about. That doesn't really scale very well. So force a password change, please and make it much easier to update and patch these systems. It doesn't need to be that complicated. Again, they're running Linux. They're running you know, Android or BSD. They have these capabilities. You can do these things. And then, of course, if there's sensitive data that you contain, please encrypt it. And I will say this. A lot of the vendors out there are encrypting the data in storage, and they're encrypting information in transit in most cases. But that should be across the board. Just uh, you know, in, You don't need a lot of horsepower these days to do it. And you can certainly pull it off with, with relative ease. So encrypt your data, require good passwords, and allow easy patching. And it's safe to say that the bad guys are looking for low-hanging fruit, right? So they're looking for people who are or devices or endpoints. When Anyway, they're looking for the open doors, correct? You know, you mentioned all these things, you know, telnet ports, default passwords, et cetera. It's, it's basically just walking around and seeing what you can easily get into. And if it's hard to get into it, you're moving on, right? Is that correct? Is that a good way of looking at it? That, that's exactly correct. And it might not mean they're moving on to a different organization. They might just try to look for different devices. So that's what's nice about these types of devices from an attacker perspective is there's just so many. A great example of this great illustration is there's an attack called Quiet Exit. This is something Mandiant discovered about roughly a year ago. Very interesting attack. Essentially, the attackers got in through traditional means, like a phishing attack. So they sent you an email or a message, or there's a social media link. They got the user to click on something, and then they got a little bit of malware on the laptop. They go, well, I don't want to stay in the laptop because you've got network security and endpoint security and you know identity management and all these things. I'm going to get caught. You're going you're gonna to end up kicking me out at some point. So from there, they started scanning for XIoT devices. I want to live on your camera. I want to live on your printer. I want to live on your door lock, right? And they said, well, why live on one when I can live on hundreds or thousands? So once they got on these devices, they had full command and control over them. They used these compromised IoT devices to make API calls. In this case of Quiet Exit, they were attacking local exchange email servers and also Office 365 in the cloud. But in both cases, it was through API. So if you had some kind of sniffing technology, it just looks like an API connection. It doesn't look like anything crazy at all. So they had these types of connections going on. Once they pulled off information, they centralized it within those IoT devices and streamed it back off. Usually they exfiltrated it over some like reverse SSH tunnel, Cozy Bear, something of this nature, where they're just going to send it out over port 22. So they got in through IT, they pivoted to IoT, then they attacked IT and cloud assets, stole the sensitive data and pulled it off. Here's the really scary part. In almost every case, nobody discovered quiet exit for 18 to 24 months. So for up to two years, people were accessing every email and attachment and other servers within the environment, not from one, not from 100, but from thousands of compromised devices. That's really, really hard to get off after the case, right? First of all, you got to figure out exactly what was compromised, what was stolen. It's going to take a long time, and they'll probably never really know the extent of the damage that was caused. And it's going to be a long process to make sure those devices that they have already within their environment are actually still secure. And there isn't some little bit lingering on some KVM switch or some UPS system out there. And I'd like to say it's hard 
for a lot of these things to operate, but I'll just throw one crazy uh, little factoid out there because I mentioned UPS. If I say uninterrupted power supply system, UPS to you guys, what's one of the top vendors that you think of? Who do you think of when you think of UPS? APC. APC. APC is the number number one vendor. So if you go to like Shodan and you say, show me how many UPSs are out there, just, just the ones that are internet connected. And again, most attacks aren't directly from the internet. It's a pivot attack like we talked about in Quiet Exit. But if you do a Shodan UPS, I bet you, I don't have it in front of me, I bet, but somewhere between 10 and 15,000 UPS systems, okay? Some of those are honeypots. So let's just say there's 9,000. What's the use case for having a UPS exposed to the internet? Probably there isn't one. It's probably a mistake. So you've got these exposed UPS systems. If you Google default password for a UPS APC, your listeners can do this right now, you'll see the default password for a UPS APC system is APC with a password of APC, all lowercase. And all the time I've been doing this, I've never found a UPS APC system that was not running the default username and password APC, APC. So stepping back, we've got roughly 9,000 devices that you can find on Shodan today. And they're probably, those UPS systems are there because something very critical is plugged into it that you can access with the default username and password. That's sad. It's not even hacking at that point. You're it's just not hacking at all. Entering no need to hack. Valid credentials. <laughs> yeah. So it's using Google. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And showdown. <laughs> that is a lot of hacking, I guess, using Google. <laughs> well, Brian, it's been awesome chatting with you. Thanks for making some time with us today. Is there any last parting wisdom you want to leave our audience with as our time comes to a close? Yeah. Well, thank you, Ted. And thank you, Ben, for having me. I guess the last part is, look, the genie's out of the bottle for these types of devices. It's not like we're going to get rid of them. It's, it's, just, it's just the way of the world. I would have liked to have said that, boy, we learned a lot from IT security over the last two decades. So we didn't make the same mistakes when it comes to this new world of, of uh, XIOT. But the sad fact is, there's if you think about servers in the cloud, there's, there's about 15 million. I'm not talking to virtual machines. I know that's a lot more, but about 15 million physical devices. You think of desktops and things with keyboards, traditional computers, they're about 5 billion. You think about XIOT, there's about 50 billion. So it's, it's multiple orders of magnitude larger than anything else we've ever had, but we're addressing it with the security concepts and building it with what we did back in the early to mid 1990s. So if you're a large organization or mid-sized organization where you think you might have thousands or tens of thousands, and again, on average, there's about three to five per employee, please take the time to a minimum, figure out what you've got, get some situational awareness, do some discovery, actually figure out what devices I have, then look at the gaps. And you're going to find that a lot of them have default passwords and old firmware. These are things you can fix. This isn't nuclear science here. We're saying, let's put some good credentials on there. If we can, let's integrate it with a PAM tool, like a HashiCorp, Dicotic, CyberArk. Let's update, let's patch, let's take care of these and treat them as what they are, which are Linux servers in most cases. So it's a solvable problem. It just requires a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of thinking about it because I don't think most organizations have had this front and center. And that's, of course, what the cyber criminals in the nation states are counting on. Russia would not have had front and built if they thought it was only going to be applicable to one or two companies. They spent all that time and money building it because they knew pretty much everybody in the world could be hit with this and then they would have the advantage. Love it. Brian, you're the man. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. All right. Well, we'll catch you later, Brian. All right. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. So Ben, what'd you think? 
Uh, Brian's a super interesting guy to talk to. You know, we're security guys. We always love talking security with people. I am fascinated by his background in cyber warfare. Security is one of those things where I don't think a lot of people realize that a lot of the outcomes are sort of in their hands. Brian talked a lot about awareness, knowing what you have, knowing how it's been set up, why it's been set up that way, the things it does, the things it doesn't do, et cetera. And I think the average person, not just the average person, but the average business even needs to start thinking about what the roles are of things and not just say it works, let's move on, everything is fine, let's bury our heads in the sand and assume it's safe. We don't know what's going on with these systems and we have to sort of operate from a, a point of skepticism. It's not to say that we abandon them, but we should have some sense of the fact that we can't control everything about them. We feel that way about cars. You know, we feel that, that way about other things that have risk in our lives. We should probably also be thinking that way about our technology. Ben, I learned a new metaphor today. Oh. The Pirates of the Caribbean metaphor. <laughs> First of all, I didn't even know that was like the Pirates of the Caribbean had that relationship with the governments of the Caribbean or whoever it was with. So I learned that. So I had a history lesson today. Okay. And then I learned this new metaphor about Pirates of the Caribbean. Of course, I could only think of Johnny Depp, even though he told us not to. But what did you think of that, the way he described that? I thought that was kind of fascinating, this relationship between a nation state and, I guess, I don't know, what, what would you call that? They're like foes in friends. I don't know. I mean, it's it, it's sort of like, you know, you want to, it's, it's, it's having a weapon that you're kind of keeping your distance from, right? Imagine if you have this, this vehicle and you don't really know what it's going to do. You know that it's going to operate in your interests but you don't know exactly when it's going to do. You don't really have a chain of command on it. You just say, live over in this little bubble and, and do your do your own thing. Just don't bother us. And we'll make sure that you're well taken care of, that you get everything you need. It's kind of scary stuff. And But I also think in some ways it serves the interests of these countries, right? You know, it's plausible de deniability, all these other things. Hey, these are just... These are just the pirates. They exist in their own little world. We have nothing to do with them. We're just we're just a humble government looking to do well by our people. It's it's funny with security. I don't feel like anything really surprises me anymore. I feel like if you work in this space long enough, nothing is really all that shocking. It's really just a matter of how you adjust to it. And and to me, I think for people, they just have to understand that this stuff exists, that it's out there. And it's not like a Kremlin is sitting, you know, someone sitting in the Kremlin and they're trying to break into everything you have, but perhaps they're funneling resources into these groups and those groups are looking to cause trouble and you're not sure what, what realm it's going to be in, or even if they're still embedded within your system. Uh, it, people sometimes think about things like, well, someone's going to break into my system, they're going to deploy ransomware, and then we're going to be in big trouble. You don't know that. They could be they could be in your system now and they could just be exfiltrating data for the next year. But the only way we know is if we implement proper assessments, put in defense in depth, do proper threat modeling, all the disciplines that we have to take in order to be reasonably assured that we're doing the right things that we're bring our risk levels to a low level. Yeah. I mean, you say threat modeling, you get me excited. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it, man. Yeah. It's always fun to have security people on the show because even when they're talking about things that I, as a security person and you as a security person, like we already know, they help me think differently about it and like, and see things in new lights. And it's always fascinating to see what are the of the many areas that are issues, where are they focused on? And obviously, in Brian's case, focused on XIoT. That was something that was, you know, of, of real importance for him. And I thought he gave really good, actionable advice about what to do about it. I mean, we've, we've all heard the advice before, but that problem can feel so unsolvable, right? It's like, well, 
I didn't build the device. Yeah. What do I do about this? You know, and I thought he gave really good advice what to do. Totally. I mean, I, I think that it's a big advertisement for defense in depth. You know, it's a concept we talk about all the time, which is you don't really trust anything. You sort of assume that among all of the various interconnected systems between the applications and the devices and the networking equipment and the IoT and all this other stuff, something is going to have a weak link in the chain. Something is going to either be have the embedded malware that he was talking about, or it's going going to have an unpatched vulnerability or it's going to be running on a bad password or something like that. But this is why you build multiple defenses. This is why you stay aware of things. This is why you stay on top of your updates and your patches and stuff like that. And it's why you don't just deploy things for the sake of deployment. Uh, we had another guest on recently and we, we, they talked about having you know development with purpose. Everything needs to have purpose because there's a risk associated with things too. If you do those things, the outcomes tend to be pretty good. It doesn't guarantee anything but the outcomes tend to be pretty good when you do do things the right way and, and have a good discipline. So let's end on this idea, Ben. I have a question for you. Okay. What is your favorite metaphor for defense in depth? My favorite metaphor for defense in depth? You really put me on the spot there, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut out all the dead dead air. Like you can just think as long as you want. Uh, no, okay. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I would say defense in depth. I'm a basketball guy. I like basketball. And when some one of the best things you could have in basketball for defense is having a rim protector, right? So you're playing, you have five on five, right? And you're playing basketball and you have a guy, you've got a LeBron James or, or, you know, I, I don't want to get on anybody's fan side. You got Giannis, you got somebody on the perimeter and they're dribbling the ball and you're worried about them shooting a three over you, but you're also worried about them driving by. Well, that's why you have a rim protector, right? You got some seven foot guy at the rim waiting so that when your guard fails to defend them, you got a guy at the rim ready, waiting to give them the Dikembe Mutombo treatment and say, no, no, no. And then, then send the ball, send the ball back. And I mean, and that's defense in depth, right? You have people covering for people, systems that look out for other systems. You don't assume everything's perfect. You have a scheme in place, some kind of design to accomplish something, but then a fallback plan to adjust. Maybe that's the simplest way to look at it for my mind. I will be stealing that. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah. And <laughs> and not only that, you wove in a Georgetown reference, which makes my heart sing because Dikembe is one of our favorite sons. Oh, right. Dikembe. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I, maybe I should use Alonzo Mourning or Patrick Ewing or Allen Iverson. Ewing. You can use Ewing. There's another Georgetown reference, but you know, we're going to, we're, yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm so self-serving in this metaphor right now. Well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. A rim protector is the phantom death. I was I usually talk about castles, but I like what you just described very, very much. All right, Ben. As always, been fun chatting with you. And uh, Brian was awesome today, so we'll do it again soon, huh? All right. See you, Ted. Yep. For everyone else, you want to know more about the show or request to appear yourself, just go to tedherrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different, podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.